Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Chef Brandy Key coming up in a little bit, but first, I am joined by my frequent co-host and good friend, local restaurant consultant, Nathan Ketchum. Nathan, welcome back. How are you? I'm here. I'm alive. I'm breathing. I guess it's good enough. Yeah, we'll take it. We're not, I'm not fussy when it comes to you. I appreciate that, I think. Yeah. Let's go with the news of the week, starting with, uh, I, I feel like we should have like the food hall news item of the week, because we are, we are rapidly building towards three new food halls coming to downtown. Do they have their own line on the on Culture Map yet? Just its own page? Yeah, it needs its own heading. Food Hall Food Hall Tracker. Yeah. Food hall dot Houston dot culture map dot com. Yeah. I'll I'll talk to our tech people about that. Um a couple of weeks ago it was that Ben McPherson is opening Bo Pasta at Bravery Chef Hall. And this week it is the news that Catalina Coffee owner Max Gonzalez is opening Amaya Coffee at Finn Hall. That's the one coming to the J.P. Chase, Morgan Chase Tower downtown. Um, Finn Hall is the really cool one, right? The kind of... Uh, Finn Hall is the one that's already announced Mala, Sichuan, Good Company, uh, a seafood concept from the owners of Harold's in the Heights, uh, Mr. Nice Pie, and a Dish Society. What's the design of that one? Is that the one with the really unique design concept? It's the. It's got a kind of an Art Deco yeah, look. Yeah, the Art Deco one. Yeah. Yep. And uh, obviously they have some really good solid concepts from a from an ownership perspective yeah so that is how finn hall has been approaching this they are doing concepts that are related to established houston restaurants uh and really there's just about no one when it comes to coffee that's more acclaimed than max gonzalez i mean catalina was yeah not in houston yeah right i mean david buer max gonzalez you know, Matt Toomey from Boomtown. I mean, that's kind of, you know, the the leaders of coffee in Houston, at least from my perspective. Uh, Catalina was the first of the kind of fancy third wave. Yeah, he's our trailblazer. He is. And he hasn't really done, you know, he, he did a little bit of consulting for Mercantile when it opened up in Rice Village. But he, he unlike some of his uh, colleagues in coffee, has not really grown in quite the same way. He has a Maya roasting company that supplies a lot of places around town and he has Catalina, but this is just the second dedicated shop from Max Gonzalez. Yeah. It's a, I think it's a smart move. Finn hall seems to be, you know, it is interesting that there's so many food halls opening in downtown all at the same time. It'll be interesting to see what survives, what doesn't maybe all of them will be able to do really well. Obviously there's a lot of new apartment complex and high rises and, and people moving into the area, so maybe they'll all do well. Um, I, I haven't really been able to make a determination on that. But I think uh, Finn Hall will at least be able to, most of the concepts will be able to do well because of the, the way that the ownership's approaching it, getting these established concepts. Um, the area that the that it's in, it's in the kind of the central downtown. Right, I think, Morgan Chase. Right, I think that is Finn Hall's greatest advantage is that 
It is right in the heart of the Central Business District. It has tunnel access. It's on the rail line. So especially for a coffee concept, especially for uh, Amaya, it has a solid group of downtown office workers who will be its patrons. Yeah, these concepts are going to be swamped at lunch. Uh, I think they're going to make their their money at lunch. If they can be busy at dinner, then they're going to make their profit. That's where they're going to. They're going to take home their money is dinner, but they're, they're going to make their money at lunch and everything else is just going to be gravy after that. Yeah, dinner is the big question mark because having, you need to have like certain kind of lighter entrees at lunch that, that'll make, and less expensive, that'll make sense to me. You know, these food halls, especially Finn Hall, will be kind of an extension of the, a better version of some of the restaurants that are in the tunnels now. Uh, having a, a more hearty, more substantial dinner menu. I think that's the trick. And I, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not predicting good or bad for them. I think that's something these, these operators are probably aware of and something they'll have to figure out. Yeah. What, what's the one where it's like the chef driven concepts and they cook in front of you. So that's bravery chef hall. That I feel like has a great, that one's appeal got a, at dinner. Yeah. That one's got kind of a, its own swing to it, which I think will give it um, an advantage because I would, you know, if I was living in downtown, I uh, I would try that. That would be a, uh, I think those two would be the ones that I would approach the most. Obviously, with Conservatory being, you know, the one that everybody goes to already. So, right, right, and I mean, but you know, we can kind of see the potential at Conservatory. Only one of the five original restaurants that started at Conservatory are still there. Yeah, right. They've all turned over. I don't know what the plan is for Finn Hall. I would assume that bringing in these prominent local restaurant groups to stock the thing, uh, the plan is that they'll stick around for a little bit. Yeah, I would assume so with the, you know, good company, Mala. I don't think they're signing leases to only stay for a little bit. Right. They're not the type of companies that would do that. Right. I mean, truthfully, uh, you know, reading all this stuff and, and knowing about all these food halls and all the options there are to to eat and get really good food and do things in downtown makes downtown a lot more, you know, I lived in downtown for two or three years. I, I enjoyed it even from, you know, 2009 to 2012. Um, the idea of moving back down there with so much more to do seems incredibly appealing. Yeah. And I have thought about that myself. I mean, I've been in Montrose now for almost 10 years and, and I do get that kind of itch for a new neighborhood. Downtown certainly seems appealing. Um, unfortunately you may have noticed, uh, this podcast is free to listen to and all of culture map is free to read. So that puts a little bit of a, a cap on my income. So can't quite kick cut swing the downtown rent yet, but I'm working on it. Oh, we need to, we need to go fund me or a patron for Eric. I would never, I would never ask, uh, the devoted listeners of this podcast to subsidize my rent, but I, I just got to hustle a little harder. I got to figure out a little, a way to boost my earning. Cause I, because I'm, I'm with you. I think downtown is super exciting right now. Whole bunch of new restaurants, whole bunch of new stuff to do. Um, these food halls make it even more appealing. I would like to live downtown. I just got to figure out how to pay for it. Yeah, and then your your previous podcast uh, guest, uh, ben, uh, ben Berg. Yes. He's opening a, a what seems to be a very uh, appealing restaurant pretty soon too. So Yeah, Benjamin in the star. Uh, he talked about it. Well, certainly more than I've ever heard him talk about it anywhere else uh, last week on the show. So if you haven't heard that, it's worth going back and listening to. All right, let us move on. Um, major chef change to a prominent Montrose restaurant. 
Uh, Gabe Medina, the chef de cuisine at Aki, is no longer there. Um, I confirmed that with the general manager of the restaurant last week. He said that Aki's owner, Paul Key, and his right hand, Maya Lee, who was the chef de cuisine at Paul's restaurant, Kunaho in Austin, closed uh, earlier this year, will be uh, spending more time in Houston. Of course, the key is somewhat controversial because there are domestic assault charges still pending against Paul Key. Uh, they have not been adjudicated, but it has hurt the restaurant's reputation. Um, to Gabe's credit, I think he held that place together during all the related media scandals that uh, accompanied a key's opening. And it's not clear to me kind of what happened. I, I've sent, uh, I've reached out to, to Gabe. I have not heard from him. Uh, and as I said, the restaurant wasn't going to comment on the specific decision that led to Gabe no longer being there. But the sous chef, Nikki Vongthong, is still there. The pastry chef, Joe Bartolome, is still there. So it's not totally in the woods, but I don't know. What do you think about Gabe Medina leaving a key? It is definitely very interesting. Haven't heard why. Obviously, there's a couple little rumors. It's hard to give credence to anything. Uh, Gabe was one of the main reasons why I and a lot of other people gave a key a really big shot. Um, when obviously with all of the the issues surrounding Paul and Aki and you know the the controversy, Gabe's such a a, a nice guy, uh, such an incredibly talented chef that it's it's easy to 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 say, well, I want to give Gabe a shot. Um, you know, he needed uh, he needed the benefit of the doubt. His food needed the benefit of the doubt. So we're gonna go give Aki a shot. And I think a lot of people did that. A lot of his fans and a lot of the people that have followed his cooking and his career, you know, went to a key because of him and went to a key because of Jillian. So um, I, I think it's kind of a, a, a bummer that he left for sure. And uh, I don't know the, the, the reason why. So, um, yeah, he, he's number one on the podcast guest wish list at this point, right? Yeah. Uh, especially if he's uncensored. Right. But I will say that, you know, you are not the only person connected to the restaurant industry that I've heard that from. And in fact, when we were doing the voting for the culture map tastemaker awards, our panelists, all of whom are connected to the restaurant industry, uh, nominated Gabe for rising star chef of the year, nominated Joel for pastry chef of the year, did not nominate the restaurant for best new restaurant. So this idea of you want to support your peers, you want to support your friends, you want to support the people whose careers you've been following across various restaurants over the years. That makes sense to me, um, despite whatever feelings a person may have about the assault charges or what Paul Key has been accused of. And without Gabe there, I think it kind of loses that. But, you know, maybe it's maybe it's established enough now that it doesn't it doesn't need that as much. Yeah, obviously they've they've earned, you know, they've got four star reviews. Um, they've earned some credence there, uh, but it, it hurts it, you know, going, going to a key was kind of like a, Hey, I'm going to go and, you know, give this place a chance, even though, you know, the food's great, but, uh, so it's not really give it a chance, but you know, I'm, I'm going because Gabe's there or, or you know, out of respect for the chef. So with him not being there, I, I think it hurts it a little bit. I don't know how much, 
Um, I'm not familiar with how well the business is doing or anything like that. So I don't know if it's it, it's not going to matter on their bottom line at all. But I think for from a lot of Houston restaurant people, it's going to hurt. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I will be very curious to see what Gabe does next. Obviously, he had well-regarded stints at Katarabata and then Soma Sushi. And he's not just, uh, you know, he's not just um, working in Asian cuisines. I mean, his his fried chicken that he did for the menu at Bosta uh, Cafe was some of the best fried chicken I've ever had. Yeah, he did a um, few sandwiches that were really good there. Yeah, he did a house smoked pastrami that was really good. Yeah, that was I was trying to come up with this pastrami there. Yep, uh, it was very good. Um, he's a really talented chef. He's kind of all over the place in terms of styles, uh, but I, I know that uh, Asian um, is really his home. I'm sure he'd like to to open up something that would uh, showcase what he's really passionate about. So if there's anybody with a lot of money, I'm sure uh, Gabe would love to hear from you. That's right. You could do worse than staking Gabe. All right. Uh, and then we don't do a lot of retail food on this show. Obviously, the focus is always on bars and restaurants, but... I am intrigued by uh, a new food truck that wants to kind of change the way people shop for groceries. It is called Grit Grocery. Uh, it was started by a couple of Rice MBAs and another guy with a PhD in cultural anthropology who has studied the way that people shop for food. Uh, and the idea is that the truck has a rotating schedule. It pops up in different Houston neighborhoods uh, every weekday. And that from 3 to 9 p.m., they sell produce, proteins, dry goods, uh, and also meal kits, right? Everything you need to make dinner for that night. Um, what Michael Powell, one of the owners, told me that most people don't know what they are going to cook for dinner in the morning. And if you give them an opportunity to buy a complete meal kit in the afternoon, they will typically take it. Um, Obviously, services like Blue Apron have become more popular to help people do their meal planning. Uh, this has the advantage of being slightly less expensive than those options. It's not a subscription, and it also utilizes a lot of locally sourced vegetables and proteins. Uh, Nathan, you cook at home a lot more often than I do. Are you intrigued by Grit Grocery? Yeah, I haven't seen it. I, if it was... Um down by my home, I'd probably go give it a give it a try, uh, especially for the meal kit options. I'm not the biggest fan of meal kit options personally because I like to to choose and uh, pick my meal plan. But I have I've have done a few. I've done a few of the HEB ones. Um, my wife likes them because it's easier and um, she doesn't have to deal with me being a giant pain in the butt. Uh, but I, I would give it a try. I um I think the concept's really interesting. If they could really spread it out and open all over the place and and kind of give people a chance. I don't know the pricing. I'd have to see the pricing. I really like the idea that it's kind of local um, produce, local stuff. Right. That is the biggest problem with the farmer's market, right, is that it only happens Saturday mornings or Wednesday afternoons at City Hall. And other than that, if you want local produce, you either have to, you know, subscribe to a CSA or or maybe there's the rice market on Tuesdays, but but it's not very convenient. This is 
this is open in the evenings. It's in people's neighborhoods. And so they told me, I haven't seen the specific pricing. They said the cost is similar to Whole Foods. Uh, they want to try to get that down a little bit. Um, but their cost to expand is relatively small because, you know, if a new grocery store costs $10 million to build, a new grocery truck costs 60 grand. So if this catches on, they, they already have one truck, they're building a second. I mean, if it catches on, they could have a fleet of five or six of them wandering around the city. Yeah, and it's interesting if you if you think about it. Uh, you know, I live in a, a apartment complex right now, and at five to six, man, it's crazy. I try to avoid the place from five to six because it's like uh, a race car place with how many people are coming home. So if if they were to set up at my place between five and six, they'd probably sell. Um, they sell fifty dinners. Probably. Yeah, they, I mean a ton of them because it's a, it's a fairly high end place. There'd be a lot of people willing to just throw money at them so they wouldn't have to either go out to dinner or, you know, what's the, I mean, the biggest argument that couples have, right? What, what What's for dinner tonight? Right. What are we having for dinner? And then there's an hour of silence. So I, I think that would, it, it could be a pretty easy way to solve things. As long as the meal kits are really easy to make and uh, yeah, they I mean, taste good. Right. They've told me that they are. I mean, I really, I should go check this out. I mean, I should. Should go, you yeah, know, I'd like buy to see you kit. cook one. That would be a can you we know, YouTube that? That would be a fun we, thing, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I that would know. be a patron, right? Set that up and everybody can pay yeah. to watch you cook yeah, something, five dollars to watch me cook something. I, you know, I, I have never pretended to be a chef. I can, you know, I can boil water, I can make pasta, I can, I can throw some things together in a pan and stir them. I have you can, burn I have water. pots and pans and knives. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not totally inept, I just don't want to create recipes or anything like that. And my knife skills are kind of awful, but neither here nor there. So grit grocery, something to keep an eye on. And especially for people who live um, where the truck rotates, like right now there's, uh, they have a stop in uh, Market Square. They have a stop in, uh, in the uh, Sixth Ward, I think. Yeah, like but, they're downtown. Yeah. You can follow them on social media and figure out where they are. But, but if it's near where you live, this is uh, certainly an intriguing option. All right. And then. I don't want to go too long. I mean, I don't want to go too much longer than we have already gone. Um, but I will note that Medici, the California-based Neapolitan pizza chain, has closed its location on Richmond Avenue right next to Kieran's. Um, I will shed no personal tears for Medici. I know you liked it because it was very affordable. Yeah, it was cheap. It was very close to my house. Um, not going to say it was fantastic. The service was terrible. Uh, but again, it was half the price of Pizarro's and like 75% is good. Yeah. 75% is good. Two, two minutes from my house. Um, and I could eat there, you know, a couple times a week, you know, you, I, my wife and I found one thing there each that we liked. So it made it worth it. I can't say that it was overall a good restaurant. We did enjoy our visit to the Katie one. We did that. That very first lunch at the Medici and Katie seemed to be better. I, th- I then, think overall the concept is a good concept. The franchise is a good ki- franchise. That this particular one was probably just ran very badly. That is certainly possible. Uh, do you have an opinion about what you would like to see take that space? Um, Pizarro's could be a <laughs> that's right. just because uh, being greedy, but um, I think it's a really good location. Obviously, there's two uh, wood burning, very nice pizza ovens, the same that Connie Rosa or Pizarro's uses. Uh, in there right now, so it would be a very easy setup for uh, anyone that uh, you know has the 
the general idea of or wish of opening a pizza place. Yeah, I. Yes, if there were a. Uh, there happens to be a listener who uh, who likes, who, who has really good pizza recipes and and wants to open a pizza place. Call Midway. Call Midway Development. They'll. Uh, I'm sure they'll want to get someone in there as soon as possible. Yes. All right, and then finally, uh, GQ, the magazine, put together its list of the 13 best new restaurants in America. Uh, two of them are from Houston, which is kind of a pleasant surprise. Hugo Ortega's Oaxacan restaurant, Sochi, and Justin Yu's reimagined uh, bistro for Oxheart, Theodore Rex. Um, you know, we talk about Houston kind of finding its place uh, nationally being properly considered for lists like this. I know BuzzFeed published a list of the best Indian restaurants in America that didn't include anything from Texas, which is always kind of suspect. Um, but I think at this point, having with chefs that have won uh, three James Beard Awards in the last five years, Houston's always going to be on the radar for lists like this. And I think Sochi and T-Rex are as good a choices as any for it. Yeah, I still uh, have yet to go to T-Rex. I, I heard of, it was a bit bumpy when they first opened, but it seems to have found its footing. He's found its way. I was obviously hard. He completely switched gears and switched concepts, so I think he had to figure out his reimagination for the the whole thing and, and get it going. But it sounds like he's got it got it in fourth or fifth gear and is gone. Yeah, uh, a really nice review from Bill Addison in Eater and an inclusion on uh, that website's list of the best restaurants in Texas. Four stars from Allison Cook, and now this from Brett Martin in GQ. It really does seem like whatever stumbles T-Rex had in the first six weeks, uh, it is confidently hitting its stride. Yeah, and then obviously Zochi has just been pretty damn good since it opened. Yeah, I mean, we had our dinner there back in August. It was just kind of mind-blowing when it all came together. Yeah, it's a fantastic restaurant. All right. That does it for News of the Week. We'll be right back with our Restaurants of the Week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? So, Nathan, usually when it comes time to talk about the Restaurants of the Week, uh, we come to praise places. Uh, That is not going to be the case this week. Uh, We went to Blue Onyx Bistro. It's a new restaurant near the Galleria on Richmond Avenue, just inside the Loop. It is related to a... A uh, seafood restaurant called Redfish Grill up in Cyprus. Um, I'm just going to say this is a restaurant that has like a, a diverse array of seafood options. It's got a couple steaks on the menu. Uh, it's got a whole range of sushi. And I'm just going to say that we probably had one of the worst meals we've had in the last year. You didn't like it? I thought it was really good. I don't believe you <laughs> uh, because you had one bite of my sushi roll and wouldn't eat any more of it. And you ate about a quarter of your steak before you gave up. It's because it was so tasty. I it was just it was didn't so want to ruin the flavored. image. Um, no, I mean let's. Um, yeah, I, I I hate bashing new restaurants, especially restaurants. new restaurants. Um, but they they need to get their stuff together. Um. Whoever made the sushi, I, it seems like they made they used one of those sushi bazookas that you see on YouTube or the TV to make the sushi. Uh, they used white rice, just white rice, no vinegar, 
no anything. The the rice was obviously not even washed, or if it had been, it had been sitting for a while. Um, it was the proportions of the ingredients in the roll were off. It had a giant piece of sort of generic looking white fish and a little bit of crab and a little bit of uh, shrimp in it. Um, and it was cut really oddly. Like well, they, was, they were very thin. Well, it was butchered, I think is the best way of saying it. The The pieces were very jagged. I don't know if they, they used a butter knife to try to cut the rolls or what was going on. And and again, don't take me at my word. There was just a really nice write-up today from the... Uh, what, where was Yes, Holly Barreto and Houston Food Finder had a lot of nice things to say about Blue Onyx Bistro, but that was not our experience. Um, I will say your your steak was substantially overcooked and under-seasoned, so it was uh, flavorless, and it didn't have any... You had a ribeye, did not have any of that, like, big, beefy, fatty flavor. Yeah, there was no marble into my ribeye. It was... Uh, so we, we think... Um, definitely not a... Uh, not Certainly not prime beef, probably not even choice. Yeah. Um, I had a piece of fish that, that actually was perfectly fine uh, that I might even get again, but it had this kind of baked topping on it with, and the crab, it had a crab meat topping that was baked onto it, which I just haven't seen um, in a seafood restaurant in a really long time. Uh, I had flashbacks to sort of my 80s childhood. Yeah, um, it had a shredded crab on top, which is always a, a sign of something. And then I don't, you know, I, I know that, that aesthetic taste is subjective and I don't, I don't pretend to be the most stylish person in the world, um, but the decor needed some work too. It's it uh, different colors of wood, different styles of wood on the walls. Uh, again, this kind of eighties looking lighting fixtures, none of which made a whole lot of sense to me. And then weirdly, like uh, a whole bunch of tiki cocktails for a reason I don't reasons I don't really understand. We we were there for lunch, so we didn't we didn't order a cocktail. Um, I can't speak to whether or not those were good, but um, just a just a, a very um, unfortunate experience, highlighted by the fact that um, the waiter kind of saw that we didn't really eat the sushi roll, uh, that you didn't eat your steak, didn't didn't ask us what we thought of them. I I think that's always a that's always a suspicious move on the part of a server when you see that um, your patrons haven't eaten the food. Not to not to even go so. Uh, What'd you guys think? Uh, and then to have been confronted by the owner as we were walking out, we had already paid the bill. He, he stopped us. He sort of stood in front of us as we were leaving uh, and asked us what we thought. And we, you know, in that environment, like all you really want to do is just get out of there. But I think we, you know, I tried to be polite, but honest about our experience. Yeah. The, the server went up to the owner at one point and, and, look to be explaining to him at minimum that the steak, because the server knew the steak was overcooked, asked if we wanted a new one. Um, right. We declined. Yeah. Well, the food had taken so long already. Um, and again, let me throw an asterisk up here. There was only one server. It, this could have been one of those everybody called in sick days. Um, you know, somebody who's owned restaurants and worked them in them forever. There is always one day where, crap just hits the fan and things are terrible so who knows this could have been one and this could be a perfectly great restaurant and that was just a terrible terrible day so let me asterisk all of this with maybe that was it 
I will say that the the quality of the food lends me to believe that that is not the case. Uh, the quality of the steak seemed to be very subpar. The quality of the fish was definitely of that realm too. It definitely was a, a pre-frozen fish with a you know bagged crab on top. Uh, but again, I'll I'll you know say maybe it's a really good restaurant. We just had a bad experience. Um, but yeah, the, the server, you know, went to the, the owner and, and seemed to be telling him that, Hey, maybe we should comp something on these, these guys. They didn't actually eat 70% of their food. Uh, and the owners threw his hands up in the air and looked to yell at the server. And then, uh, we paid our, our bill, walked out. He blocked the door, blocked us from stopping and wanted to know how our food was. Um, and then kind of, and kind uh, of admitted that they were still figuring things out. Yeah, but it was more of an an excuse fashion, like yeah. Uh, well, we did this because. Well, we did this because, and it's like, okay, can we leave now? Right. You know, um, please don't make us eat more food. We would like to leave. Right now, I I will say, um, in the course of my travels in this world, I have met the landlord of this particular property, and so I I shared with him uh, some of my opinions about our meal. He has invited me back to have dinner with him there, uh, and I have accepted that invitation. So I will have. An update on Blue Onyx Bistro next week, but I would not, I will not subject you to another meal there. Oh yeah, I I'm not gonna go back uh, ever, but I uh, I would not be surprised to hear, hey, it was a lot better. Well, I would hope so. If if you're sitting with the person who owns the building uh, and you still can't get a decent meal, then that's that'd be a pretty bad sign. Yeah, I I have made my opinion and it's set in stone at this point. Um, but that does not mean other people shouldn't give it a try if they f- if they absolutely feel like they have to. Right. Uh, on a more positive note, uh, turning away from Blue Onyx Bistro, on a more positive note, we did have a really nice dinner Saturday night at Killen's Barbecue. Um, I don't think of Killen's Barbecue as really a place for dinner, uh, but they've been serving it for a while, and they are about to upgrade what they do at dinner substantially. Uh, they're going to have table service. They're going to start taking reservations. But Ronnie Killen posted a picture of uh, pork spare ribs in a Korean barbecue sauce uh, that I just had to have. And you were very, uh, you were happy to let me drive you to Pearland. Um, I will say those Korean barbecue ribs are one of the best pieces of barbecue I've had in a while. And it it had the right balance. It had that kind of kimchi sour um, a little bit of sweet, nice caramelization on the sauce on the ribs, and and really just a reminder that uh, when Ronnie wants to serve something delicious, he is fully capable of that. Yeah, truthfully, that's easily one of the the top three best things I've had from Ronnie in a, at least a really long time. Uh, my memory's faulting here, but it was very good. Those would have if I wouldn't have had to stand in line for another thirty minutes, I would have ordered. A couple more. Uh, they were very good. Um, and you, I a, you also ordered a steak that was very good. Yeah, I had a really and nice, very cheap. Yeah, a New York strip uh, with baked potato and salad for twenty three or twenty four dollars. Um, yeah, it's steak night there every night. Yeah, they do the steaks there uh, every night. They're open for dinner, which is Tuesday through Sunday. And you know, I don't, I don't know what the future holds in terms of table service and expanding the dinner offerings. I do hope they keep those steaks at a similar price point because it's a lot like going to 
a less expensive chain steakhouse, and I won't name names because one of them is a has a very prominent sponsorship on the uh, radio stations that are owned by the company that owns Culture Map. So I'm not going to shame anybody, uh, but I will say that that the steaks at Killen's Barbecue uh, compare very favorably to those and are an excellent value uh, for what they are. Yeah, they they were, they were good. I could see the actual steaks, you know, wrapped in and in, in the cooler. Yeah, waiting and being for somebody to order from them. raw on a grill. So uh, yeah, that was pretty awesome. Yeah, they were uh, they were very good quality for the the twenty three dollars, especially if you got a baked potato and a salad or two sides or whatever the deal was. Um, and a creme brulee cheesecake, which is exactly what it sounds like, a piece of cheesecake with a crispy layer of burnt sugar on top. It was uh, very tasty. Yeah, and I'm always impressed at a barbecue place that you have to wait, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes in a line on a on a evening, even if it's Saturday. It's right. still very impressive if at seven seven or six thirty seven, when there's a, a 30 minute wait outside the door. That's just very, very impressive. Shows this way that Ronnie still has when it comes to barbecue. Yeah, I mean, Killen's Barbecue has basically been a juggernaut since the day it opened. Uh, it shows no signs of slowing down. And as long as he keeps coming up with occasional dishes like those, uh, those spicy or those, uh, those Korean, Korean barbecue ribs. ribs, yeah, you know, he'll, he'll have plenty of success there for a long time. Yeah, he'll get a couple more Bentleys and a couple more uh, vacation houses. You said it, not me. All right. Nathan, thank you for joining us. We can follow you on Twitter at H-Town Food Junkie. Uh, also on Instagram, not that you use it. Hey, I'll post a photo you know, once every six months. All right. Very good. Um, that does it for our restaurants of the week. I will be right back with Brandy Key. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? Our interview this week is brought to you by Eighth Wonder Brewery, one of my favorite local breweries. I know a lot of the time I like to talk about what's going on at the brewery in Edo, but I also like to talk about their beer because it's good and it's worth drinking. Weisstimer, their Hefeweizen, recently added to the year-round lineup, so you'll find that on store shelves and on tap walls all over the city. Currently, the seasonals are Brewston and IP8, but they will soon give way to Haterade, the uh, very refreshing, slightly tart Goza, and Procrastinator, a new beer that they describe as the official beer of doing nothing. And then they're also launching a, uh, a Houston hip-hop series, starting with a Boss Beer that is a collaboration with Slim Thug. And if you happen to be looking for things to do at the brewery, April 20th, Harris Fest, inspired by Harris Whittles, the very famous local comedian and author who died much too soon. And on April 22nd, they're going to have their annual Crawfish and Brews Festival. Tickets for that are on sale now. Thank you to Eighth Wonder, and here's our interview of the week. I am joined now by Chef Brandy Key, culinary director? Yes, sir. For Lasco Enterprises, the company that owns the Tasty Room, uh, Max's Wine Dive, and a couple other concepts. Brandy, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks, Eric. I'm doing fantastic. Doing great. Thanks for being here. I always like to start at the beginning with these interviews. Um, so even though I've known you for a long time, uh, 
Can you tell me just a little bit about how you got started in the restaurant business? What made you want to be a chef? Sure, absolutely. Um, You know, 20 years ago, maybe plus, I was coming out of high school and going to college, and I had an opportunity to go to to New York City for the first time. And the very first meal there was at Tavern on the Green, right there in the middle of Central Park. And it was super old school, as it is, and it's just a beautiful place. And I had a piece of John Dory for the very first time. And it was the first time I had a real piece of fish that was cooked in a great restaurant. And it kind of piqued my interest there. And so um, over the years, finishing college, I had the opportunity to start with Papa's Restaurants. And a friend of mine said, hey, you would absolutely love the restaurant business. You should come check these people out. And I walked in the door. I got bit by the bug, and I never turned back. So you worked for Pappas Restaurants for a long time, right? I did. Um, almost uh, 12, 13 years. I had a small stint in between that I actually went to California and went to a culinary school out there. Um, but I really cut my teeth at Pappas. And then, well... What did you do at Pappas, or how did you kind of rise through the ranks there? Sure, absolutely. So I, I got hired as just a server, and I waited tables, and I had just come out of college and had a double major, double minor in accounting and finance and business, and the GM at the time looked at me, and he was like, why do you want to wait tables? And I said, you know, I'm just interested in this business, and I'd like to have your job one day. And he thought that was kind of hilarious, and I started as a server, and I worked myself up through the entire ranks. I was a dishwasher. I was a cook. I became a front of the house manager, actually, you know, learned how to run the front and did that for a little bit over a year. And then I jumped straight into the kitchen and really never looked back. And then I met you, uh, after you left Pappas, you went to work for, uh, Clark Cooper. Yes. You opened Copa Ristorante on Washington. Yeah. So 2011, um, I had the opportunity and was approached, um, to open that restaurant and, you know, did an interview with them. And it was definitely that particular restaurant and time was a highlight in my career. Um, I loved that restaurant and just the style of food. And, you know, whenever I was told about the opportunity, it's like, Hey, they're looking to do Italian food. And I just was like, yes, yes, yes. Me, me, me. I want to go, I want to go do this thing. Cause Italian food's always been a really big passion of mine. And I was given the opportunity to develop that kitchen. So it was pretty incredible. Well, and it was the restaurant that replaced Catalan, which yes. is where Chris Shepard was before he opened Underbelly. Probably at the time, maybe the considered to be the best restaurant in Houston. So no pressure there. Right? <laughs> Not at all. You know, it's funny. Whenever whenever the, that whole thing happened, you know, obviously I was, I was super excited for Chris. And I think everyone in town was excited for Chris because he was having this opportunity to move forward and build this concept that he had in his head. Um, I was happy because, you know, sometimes people have to move out of the way to let the little guy in. And so Chris and I, our paths are always been connected uh, through the culinary scene here in Houston. And I absolutely love that. But there was article after article where Chris and I were named in the same article for years. Um, and it was, how are you going to fill his shoes? How are you going to take this space? And I never felt like it was filling his shoes. I always felt like it was a brand new start to do the food that I was passionate about. So Yeah. So how did you develop an interest in Italian food specifically? Um, really through my time in San Francisco. So I spent some time in San Francisco and Napa Valley um, between 2006, 2007. And I 
you know, Southern, Northern California has this Mediterranean Italian influence to most of the restaurants there. And the idea of being able to make things by hand, making pasta, using all this amazing produce that was there. Um, I basically ate as many times as I could at places like A16, um, really trying to understand just what great pizza, pasta, et cetera, was. Part of the other reason that I love Italian food is because it's really ingredient-based, and it's this amazing country that's diverse from north to south. And no, under understanding and knowing all of those ingredients through that was really, really exciting for me because I wanted to cook with the ingredients that made me hungry. And I... <laughs> In developing Copa's menu, I actually sat down and wrote on a piece of paper my, my we'll call it the top 100 um, of ingredients that I wanted to use. And then I cross-correlated that list of ingredients. I'm a little bit of a nerd, Eric. I, cross, I cross-referenced all of those ingredients to the countries where they at least originated from or that they used it a lot. And every single thing kept pointing to Italy. And so I just started reading as much as I could about the cuisine and the wine and really just fell in love. Did you did you get to go to Italy before you opened Copa? <sighs> I've never been to Italy. <laughs> oh, no. No, I haven't. I, it's It's been on my list for a very long time, and I've never been able to get myself there. But I can promise you in the coming years, I'm definitely going to go hang out and spend some time there. Um, but yeah, I mean, Copa, I mean, you know, for, for all the pressure and, and whatever attention, I mean, it really took off for you. It did. Uh, and then you had the opportunity to open a series of other restaurants with Clark Cooper. Um, I think I have them all down. Uh, you did, you did a second Copa, Copa Osteria yes. in Rice Village. You did Punk Simple Southern Food. You did Salt Air Seafood Kitchen and then the Dunleavy. Yes. Um, it's a, it's a diverse group of restaurants. Um, what was that like? I mean, cause it, cause it all happened pretty fast. It did. So when I was originally hired, I obviously was hired to just be the executive chef at Copa Restaurante. But I had had experience with Papa's of running multiple units and being the chef over multiple different types of restaurants with Papa's. And, you know, whenever things started happening with Ristorante, we could see the possibility with moving forward with some new concepts that were exciting, not only to the owners, but also to, to myself and the type of food that I was interested in. And I had the background of being able to build menus and teams and the systems needed in order to open these restaurants pretty aggressively and pretty fast. And so once we got Ristorante really on its feet, I just, we went all in and, you know, the, the legacy is still there and, and doing what it's doing. So. Um, and, and I mean, I, I personally always really enjoyed salt air. I thought you had a really good balance between, not just not just seafood, but but all those cool vegetable dishes, and and it had a, a really developed raw bar, and we've seen those trends kind of replicated um, in other restaurants. It's it's sort of too bad that place never really caught on the way that it should have. I agree. You know, part part of this business and being in restaurants is that you know sometimes you got to dream big and you got to really go for the things that that you're passionate about and that you want to provide to the community and to to that of Houston diners. And, you know, sometimes you, you've got to make those mistakes. And I'm not even saying that it was necessarily a mistake, but sometimes you have to have those those bumps that you go over. And unfortunately, you know, that was a really large space. Um, 
And, you know, the food was fantastic. It's, I feel like it's some of the best food that I've created in my entire career. And it gave, you know, Houston a, an opportunity to see seafood in a different way. What's interesting to me, though, is, you know, Allison Cook wrote an article not, not too long ago that had to do with, you know, Houston's perspective of seafood and that, you know, all of these places that have been so seafood driven have not really been able to sustain themselves because people here want a certain type of seafood. For instance, Chris Shepard decided not to go on with one-fifth seafood. So it's definitely one of those products that, you know, here in Houston, we're, we're kind of in a, we're in a spot that people feel comfortable with, which is okay. I, I don't see that there's any, you know, way that in the next couple of years that someone's going to do it again and they're going to find, find the thing that works and that, you know, can be really successful. Right. There's nothing wrong with like grilled snapper and, and fried shrimp and, and kind of our, our traditional kind of Gulf Coast seafood. It's just, it is a little bit strange that for all our, our diversity that, that diners just haven't embraced like a more global perspective on that. Sure. And that was part of the problem. And, you know, some of it just comes down to straight, you know, cost of goods. You know, I mean, we are running a business and, you know, we can have fantastic ideas of chef and bring. And I did. I had pur purveyors that I was using over the entire country, you know, fish out of Japan, fish out of Hawaii, things from the Midwest where I was bringing in, you know, lake fish from, you know, Chicago and, and all these really cool things. But, if you're not, if you can't get people to buy in with that because they want their snapper, which is freaking delicious. Like I love snapper. I would eat snapper. Uh, it just, it sometimes it's a little bit of hard of a sell to try to go that global and get everyone to buy in with you. Yeah. Especially in nine or 10,000 square feet or whatever. Sure. That place was. Yeah. Um, and so I don't want to, I don't want to dwell on this, but your time at Clark Cooper came to an end recently and you haven't was that a mutual decision or, or how did that sort of come to pass? Sure. You know, it's it's a pretty simple, you know, answer, Eric. You know, there's there's sometimes in relationships that, um, you know, people start growing in different directions and that's where we hit. Um, and it's it's nothing that is a bad thing. Um, it's just a growth process. And we hit that point where, you know, we were going in two different directions and 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 we made a decision. So, well, and, and I follow you on social media and I saw that you had you'd rolled out in, you know, some new dishes at Punk's and a whole new menu for Copa. And you'd even like tweak some of the things going on at, sure. at Brasserie 19. So I, I feel like you left them in really good shape. Well, I, you know, for me, it's, it's always been about the chefs and food. And I am always going to be the type of person that goes 100% in. And if I have something um, that's either, you know, something that I really want to make or something that I want to do, I'm never going to, I'm never going to walk away from that and make sure that it's not... <clears throat> taken care of from, you know, from start to finish. It's just the type of person that I am. Well, and, and to Clark Cooper's credit, it's also all about $45 of Vufli Code. <laughs> Fair that, enough. That fly out of the, the wine cellar as fast as they can pop sure. the bottles. Um, but so now you're at Lasco. Yes. So how did you, how did that come about? I mean, because I would not have, I would not have predicted that as a landing spot for Fair enough. I don't. I don't think that a lot of people did necessarily, um, but here's the thing. You know, I've I've had a really interesting arc in my career. You know, at Papa's, I learned how to run restaurants. At Clark Cooper, I had the opportunity to build them from the ground up. And Lasco is kind of this perfect third piece in my career where it's a restaurant group that's very established and has great structure and foundation in its concepts. And I have the opportunity to come in and 
push and be the spearhead for this new vision that we're going for. And that's exciting to take people who've been doing this work for years and years and give them a fresh perspective and really become this leader and teacher um, of food and, and how to run restaurants. And so this kind of, for me, is this cool arc that kind of rounds out everything that I've been given the opportunity to do. Um, as far as getting started with Lasco, you know, obviously, whenever the article came out with the the, sep- the part with uh, Clark Cooper, my phone was blowing up. Um, Laura Lasco actually, you know, saw saw the article come out and you know talked to our you know director of operations kind of head person and said, hey, do you know this person? And Jamie was like, yeah, I absolutely know her. And it just became this kind of you know ripple effect of go find her. And let's start talking. And when we did, things just really clicked naturally. And I really love Jerry and Laura. And they are fantastic business people. They have a lot of integrity about the way that they want to do things. And we just we just built a really quick relationship that's been awesome from day one. Yeah, and I feel like you have an interesting opportunity with both the tasting room and Max's Wine Dive. Um, because I think of Max's Wine Dive as kind of one of these first places that that kind of took comfort food and kind of kicked it up a notch. Um, certainly known for its fried chicken, uh, certainly known for the burger. But beyond that, I mean, I, you know, it, it has this great kind of chef legacy. Jonathan Jones worked there. Uh, Michael Pellegrino worked there for a long time. Uh-huh. But maybe in the last couple of years hasn't had like as firm an identity in the kitchen. You know, that's that's absolutely something that's fair to say. Um, you know, Jonathan and Michael really were these, you know, bigger than life personalities that were the face of these restaurants for a very long time. And, you know, Jonathan, you know, and, and just the whole group, whenever Max's was started 12 years ago, it was the first restaurant in Houston that was serving fried chicken as a dinner sit down place. You know, we've got other places now, but they were really in the forefront of bringing this whole different dining experience, you know, to the to the market. And, you know, it was always this place that was colder, darker, louder. There's always cool music playing. There's always this cool artwork that was up there. You had these larger than life personalities of chefs that were, you know, this was, they were setting trends. This is before people were putting a fried egg on everything. So we've got JJ over there, you know, who are building this amazing different types of food. And, you know, it's kind of got this bigger than life personality to it. And, um, you know, it was a really exciting time. And part of the restaurant business is you've got to be able to grow and you've got to be able to change. And, you know, people aren't eating the same way that they did 12 years ago today. And so what we want to do is we really want to kind of give diners an opportunity to have a little bit more variety. We're not doing anything with fried chicken. We're not taking the fried chicken away. No, you're not allowed. <laughs> no, there would be not. There would be riots. Absolutely not. And, uh, you know, I love our fried chicken and I think it's, you know, incredible and and it's got such this love affair with Houstonians you know anytime I tell somebody that I work with Max's they're like oh you're fried chicken and that's what you want you want to get stuck in people's heads but what we want to do to that is bring some diversity to the plate so that if you're not craving fried chicken there's some other things that you can attack on the menu and uh, be really excited about yeah and you showed a couple of those at a dinner that I was uh, privileged enough to attend Friday night with that uh seared tuna poke salad, and the, uh, I guess I'm going to call them sweet marmalade ribs. Sticky pork ribs. Sticky pork like ribs, that. yeah. They were a little bit of, I mean, almost like Chinese chasu, like not sure. not really Texas barbecue, more like 
um, red pork Chinese style. Right, something you want to really kind of get your get your get dirty with, and you got to pick it up, and you got to eat it off the bone. Yeah, no, I thought that was so funny in a in a private dining room at the tasting room. We were like, "No, y'all, you have to pick this thing up and eat it. We'll we'll give you napkins at the end, but." You can't knife and fork this. Exactly, exactly. Um, for me, you know, moving forward, my number one kind of true north with Max's food is that it has to be craveable. And I want the way that the menu reads, the items, the ingredients that we bring in to be things that when you read it on a menu or you see a picture of it, that your mouth waters. And you're like, oh, my goodness, we got to get to Max's. I want that. I want that craveable aspect to it. Um, it's bringing a little bit of lightness to everything. But, <clears throat> you know, that was a really great dinner to kind of show some of the future of what I see with Max's. By the way, thanks a lot for coming. It was a it was a fun time. and a, a It was. It was a good time. I got to hang out with with Kelly and and I don't think I'd ever really gotten to speak to her before. So, yeah. and of course I got to hang out with, uh, Felice Sloan, my frequent, uh, co-host on this podcast. I always have a good time hanging out with her. Oh yeah. Guys. She's fantastic. So, um, you know, it was a good night. The whole idea of the pop-up, you know, at the tasting room. So we did this dinner at the tasting room that was called, you know, Max's pop-up. And I really wanted to give this picture of the past, present and future of Max's. And so we did things like the Nacho Mama's oysters, which is from the past and something that's still on our menu present with fried chicken. That's not going anywhere. And then just a little glimpse of some, you know, appetizers, salads, and dessert that's kind of, I think, going to shape our future. Yeah, I mean, I think those Juicy Lucy meatballs have a real future. Yes. Uh, and that uh, that Chunky Monkey Cake with the cashews um, was just delicious. And and not and not like too sweet. And, and I always love desserts that get a little texture in them. So a little bit of crunch to go along with, with the bananas and everything. I thought that was so good. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And then so let's talk about the tasting room, too, because obviously um, you're not just you're not just tweaking things at Max's. But what are some of your plans for that or, or where are you in, in adjusting what's going on there? Sure. So, you know, the tasting room, th this has such a great history to it, too. You know, the tasting room was open 15 years ago and it was before there were wine bars that were flooded in the city. There wasn't 13 Celsius. There wasn't all these little places that you could go and have this true wine bar experience. And Jerry's idea with this entire concept was to make wine approachable and easy for people to be able to come in and have. And that's where you got things like taste before you buy, um, which didn't exist. You know, it's like, wow, I can really open that bottle and taste it. I'll never forget the first time I walked into a tasting room and it was like, oh, I can get that bottle opened and try it before I buy it. Absolutely. You know, it just was a very different mindset and really ahead of the curve. And so what's happened with the tasting room is that it's always kind of stayed in this wine bar feel, which isn't a bad thing. The food kind of came second. It was always secondary. There was some, you know, simple things that we could always accomplish and do, but it's never going to lose that wine focused, cool experience. And what I want to do in my vision for the tasting rooms is to really bring the food and the wine so that they're they're level with each other, level with each other. They play off of each other. They complement each other. Um, really staying in this Italian, Spanish, French wine country feel of food because that's what we're serving. That's what people are coming for. So really, with the tasting rooms, you know, it's just looking at getting some more you know you actually said it whenever you did a little blurb on one of the podcasts where it's like i go to the tasting room i want a bottle of wine i want to crush a flatbread right 
Right. And that's what people think. So with me, it's really just bringing about diversity of taking you to a place with food that pairs up with what kind of wine you bought for the day. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, certainly there's an opportunity for a couple of pastas on the menu. Sure. But I, I don't think it's ever going to be... Well, at least I, I mean, I don't I don't want to dismiss your potential, certainly, because I think betting against you would be foolish on my part. But I don't think it's going to be a place where people come just for the food. It's always going to be there to drink wine and then kind of what food makes sense with whatever you're drinking. that Sure. Night. And that's that's part of the driving force of the tasting rooms. Tasting rooms are supposed to be a place to celebrate life. It can be life on a Monday where you're just hanging out and you got the day off. It could be for your anniversary. It could be on a Friday night because you've got a date and it's a cool place to go and take and, and have a bottle of wine. And so it's more about the full experience than anything. We just want to bring that food up to the same caliber and par of what we're doing wine-wise. Yeah, and it, it always has seemed like a place where they've tried a bunch of different things. I mean, I, I remember when the, the city center location opened and it had a fancy pizza oven and they were kind of touting that. And then I think a year ago they were like, Oh no, we're doing, we're doing cold seafood towers now. That's, that's gonna And it's like, I don't know that any of those things has really stuck. Sure. Um, for me and moving forward, the pizza ovens at both locations are the heart of the restaurant. And I think because, you know, with the tasting rooms and type of wine that we have, it's really about this kind of European style dining. It's not necessarily coming in and I'm going to have an entree of short ribs and this glass of Barolo, right? It's not really that. It's more of this European style feel of having this hearth, this wood burning oven where all these cool small plates, whether it's seafood or meats or vegetables that are coming out and you can put two or three things on the table to accompany your wine. And so for me moving forward, you know, those pizza ovens are plus i just i mean you heard the first part of the, the interview i love a good pizza oven to me it just opens up the possibilities of all sorts of types of food that we can do and i i would argue with the seafood towers only because those white wines that you get that are crisp and clean don't taste anything better than they could without an oyster on the side oh no look like no one no one loves the seafood <laughs> tower more than me brandy key i'm just saying like i don't know that I don't know that I ever got to a place mentally where I thought of the tasting room as an option for that kind of dining, uh, which may just say as much about like me being kind of stuck, like stuck mentally in, in how I think of the place. Uh, and less about whether the execution was or wasn't good. Sure. No, no, no. I understand. I was just poking at you. No, no, that's, um, that's fine. I think we can, I think we can find a, we're going to find a way to really incorporate all those amazing ingredients that, that has the voice of the tasting room. It's definitely not a salt air or a reef or someplace you go and crush a dozen oysters. It's not ever going to be that necessarily, but I think we've got some cool possibilities in the future. Uh, and then I do want to ask you about one other thing because Lasco is working on a new concept um, in concert with Cook Lamb, the, the chef and, and one-time food writer called Singh. Uh, Cook was obviously at the dinner Friday night. I got yes. to talk to her for a minute. Uh, it has a new home. It's coming to 18th Street uh, in the Heights right next to, uh, right next to Snooze, which yeah. is awesome. I think that's going to be a great spot for it. Um, how's that going? I mean, how, what's it like working with Cook and... and where is that concept in terms of its development? Sure. Well, one of the one of the number one things is this is actually you know a passion project of cooks. Um, she's a fantastic chef, makes amazing food, and has had this you know desire and love to be able to put this thing together. This is actually an independent project from Lasco Enterprises. The actual 
um, company organization. Oh, okay. uh, Jerry and Laura are are involved personally with that, and Jerry is working with Singh as far as you know procuring the space, setting up the menu, and you know he's really great at those big kind of concept vision type things. And they wanted to do this project separately from uh, the actual Lasco Enterprises brand. And I can tell you that it's a fantastic location. I got to go and see it the other day. Uh, have has talked have had the opportunity to talk with Jerry and Cook just about the menu. I've seen the menu. My mouth was watering. Like, yes, please open this in the Heights. So I think it's going to be a really, really cool concept in an area where you don't really, there's there's not any type, there's not Singapore food anywhere around there. And she's got this amazing kind of blend of things on the menu, the to-go possibilities, the takeout possibilities. It's a really cool concept. Yeah, and the social media component and the marketing piece. I mean, I, I know like, None of that matters if the food isn't good, but I think the food is going to be good. And so um, that part's really intriguing to me, um, but not your direct responsibility. Not my direct responsibility. Um, I'm going to try to I'm going to try to get the the number one spot for a food test tester, taste tester, though. Pulse yeah, I, you've earned that. I think that's reasonable. <laughs> um, and the other thing about Lasco is it's kind of it's kind of grown and contracted over the years. Um, I, I know that's not directly your end of things either, but but. You know, is there a plan to try to grow maxes at least, I mean, to more locations or? Sure. So, you know, currently we have the two Max's here in Houston, but we also have four restaurants that are outside of the Houston market. We've got Max's in San Antonio, Austin, Denver, and Fort Worth. And, you know, it's definitely something that's on our radar because it is a fantastic brand. It's very approachable food. Uh, it's great wine. It's just a, it's a very cool place to go to. So, you know, part of the steps that I'll be taking over the next couple months is, you know, really trying to decide what that clear vision is for the concept as far as food goes. And if we have the possibility and the opportunity to really make these restaurants so that they are scalable, that's, that's the ultimate goal is I don't even think in the Houston market, we've touched all the areas that we could with this particular concept. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, that's definitely on the table of something that we're trying to go forward with and, and look at the possibilities of. All right. Well, Brandy, I've, I've come to the end of my questions, unless you have uh, something you're desperate to talk about. Uh, no, just other than, you know, I'm really excited about the future with, with all of these concepts. I also want to put just a, a small note in there. We actually have a third concept besides Max's and Tasting Room that's located in San Antonio. It's called Boiler House. It's actually located right there in the Pearl very, very cool uh, environment. Hotel M has just gotten open. It's just got this really amazing spirit there in San Antonio. And the food really focuses in on, you know, Texas grill and this wine garden thing. And I'm very, very excited about that concept. I haven't been there yet. It's the only concept that I've not been to um, to this point. But I tell you what, I'm really excited about the possibilities of that particular location and its food. Well, yeah, and that whole Pearl Brewery complex is so great because you've got a restaurant from uh, the Culinary Institute of America. Yes. You've got something from Johnny Hernandez, who's kind of a superstar in San Antonio, cured from Steve McHugh. I think he's probably going to wear to win a James Beard Award uh, in a couple of weeks when when those come out. A great uh, bakery that I think is called Lorraine. I believe that's right. Um, but just a really – the Pearl is just an incredible destination uh, – dining and otherwise in San Antonio and it's honestly the kind of thing I wish we had in Houston I agree it's you know they're actually in the middle of fiesta right now 
Um, they the whole like courtyards and everything in front of the restaurant and the entire grounds just had people and shops and it's just got such a cool life and spirit to it. We we feel really lucky that we're we're there and that you know we have the opportunity to to take care of the guests that come and see us. So, all right. Well, I always like to wrap these interviews up with something I call the lightning round. <laughs> okay. Uh, five <laughs> five short questions, five short answers. You say the first thing that comes to mind. Oh goodness. Okay, let's go. All right, Brandy Key. What's your favorite ingredient? Lemons. What is the first band you ever saw in concert? M. Ward. Oh, okay, cool. Um, who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Oh, I got to go with JJ. It's a good answer. <laughs> what is your fast food guilty pleasure that comes from a drive-thru? Fast food guilty pleasure. Well, I'm going to say this on air, but you know what? Sometimes you just need those tacos from Jack in the Box. Long time <laughs> ago, long time ago. I try not to eat that way anymore. Uh, and so where is your favorite place to get a taco in Houston? Favorite place to get a taco? Um, oh, Laredo. Laredo Taqueria, hands on, down. Yeah, on Washington Avenue. Those guys are, all, well, I should say all the women because it's all women that run the restaurant, basically. I love the owners. The brothers are fantastic, but, man, they make a good taco. That's a, that's a very solid answer. Um, Chef Brandy Key, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. We can follow you on Instagram at Chef Brandy Key. Uh, Max's Wine Dive the tasting room, all that good stuff. I'll have links to all of those on the corresponding culture map article that goes along with this podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at E Sandler on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back. next week.